Hello and welcome to Fraud Talk, the ACFE's monthly podcast. I'm Rihanna Scoggins, the content manager for the ACFE, and today I'm joined by Amy Bernard Vaughn, recognized by Forbes as top coach for legal and compliance executives and the number one global thought leader in careers by Thinkers360. Amy specializes in consulting for global companies on ethics and compliance and leveraging her expertise as a former Fortune 50 executive. Amy, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks so much for inviting me, Rihanna. So I would love to go ahead and just kick off our conversation today with um, a bit more information about your experience, your expertise, and kind of how you got to where you are today. Sure. I started as a lawyer uh, working in a litigation firm on employment issues and then found that I really didn't like getting stuck with the facts. So I wanted to be in a position to be able to help make them. So I went into house and went into HR and did that for quite a period of time. Um, really enjoyed that and worked my way into ethics and compliance, including uh, having the fraud investigations team reporting to me. So gained a huge appreciation for your field and, and our colleagues here at ACFE. Um, and then went to start up several programs for compliance and ethics, one at McKesson, U.S. Pharmaceutical. So that was um, a really big and fun project. Um, and then built compliance ethics program at a couple other companies um, for Allianz Insurance. And then... Um, became chief administrative officer of another organization and then CHRO of another organization. So kind of all roles that involve culture and tying things together so that you have the infrastructure to create a healthy ethical workplace culture, as well as the behaviors, the incenting, incentivizing and punishing when you need to, the uh, wrong behaviors. And now I'm an executive coach and a partner at Kaplan and Walker that specializes in compliance and ethics law. So I I love the mix of helping individual um, compliance officers and, and heads of risk be successful because it's a tough job. And I know we'll probably talk about some of that today. So I have a special spot in my heart for, for anyone who tries to do these, these roles uh, to do the right thing. And then also to help organizations on more of a systemic level through my law firm. So talking about experience and, you know, what comes along with these kinds of roles, an unfortunate reality for a lot of fraud examiners is that, you know, fraud's an uncomfortable topic. Um, companies often, they don't want to think about fraud. They don't want to think it can happen to them. They may, you know, shy away from really necessary conversations that revolve risk. And, you know, that comfort, that discomfort is only amplified when we're investigating potential frauds, right? Mm-hmm. How, how do we prepare ourselves for those difficult conversations, especially when it, you know, involves sensitive issues like fraud or misconduct. It's important. I think over the years I've learned both as a deliverer and then as as someone who sits in the C-suite and sees how other leaders react to bad news. And then now as a coach with neuroscience and getting feedback around how sometimes well-intentioned bad news deliverers are received. It's a tough Mix, and that's why I've done. I did a deep dive on this research and have um, written a couple of articles. There's a journal piece coming out this summer, and it's it's around six steps to delivering bad news because there is a way to prepare for it to make it more likely that your listener will hear you, respond the way that you're hoping they will, 
and where you won't, won't suffer the political backlash that can come with having a role like this. So to get to a little of the neuroscience, um, bad news impacts us as individuals five times more than good news. And so it's important to think about that. If you, I'm sure you can think of an example in your own life where you've ruminated over something where it's like, why does that bother me when this great thing happened today? Right. You know, I should be thinking about that. Well, our brains, unfortunately are wired for risk. Actually. Um, it's the saber tooth tiger thing. You know, we, our lizard brain is, is wired to just think about that one bad thing. Oh my God. Why did that happen? How can that happen? How can I make it keep it from happening again, as opposed to the fabulous thing that happened that morning? So same thing happens in corporate. Um, and if we had have bad news to deliver, we need to think about very care. If we have the luxury of time, if we don't, it's best to study this ahead of time and just exercise the muscle and get really good at it. Um, would it be helpful to walk through the steps? Yeah, absolutely. For people? Okay. Um, so the first thing is to psychologically prepare your audience. And what I mean by that is you want to give people at least a beat to understand like it's a heads up, basically, that, hey, I'm about to tell you something that really isn't great. You may not want to hear, and I need you to hear it. So you want to say something like, say you're walking into a one-on-one, -on -one, or you've asked for 15 minutes on an executive's calendar because it's urgent. Um, you've just discovered something in an investigation, whatever it is. Um, you want to say something like, hey, I wish I had better news. And then pause and then give them a second to be like, they're literally preparing their mind um, to hear it. So that's super helpful so that people can be, you don't want to shock someone. When you when you shock someone, our brain actually freezes for like 1 27th of a second. If you ever, when you hear of someone who's stopped dead in their tracks, or that's what it means. It's like, you need, you need to ease in. So that's the first step. The second step is when you have the luxury of time to rehearse confident delivery. You want to come across as credible, that you, that you know what's happened, that you're sharing everything transparently that you know, and you're sharing what you don't know yet and what you're doing about it. So preparing and rehearsing confident delivery has been proven to increase how we come across to the recipients of bad news. Because the other tough part about the neuroscience on this is bad news delivers have been found um, in, in experiments to be less trustworthy and unlikable, which is bad news to deliver to our audience here. Um, if they've ever felt that, I'm afraid it's true. And compliance officers and HR people and anyone who's in a role that can be really tough are all in the same boat with us, right? So um, rehearsing is, is the number two step. Number three is to be fully present and focused. You just mentioned something earlier that can come into play is that we can avoid or want to to um, not really fully lean into the bad news that we're delivering. That's not a good idea. We want to really show people that we care. The way that you can overcome that predisposition to people believing that you are unlikable or that you have bad intent is to remind them why you're there, remind them of your good intent, proactively convey that beneficial intent. Hey, you hired me to find this kind of stuff. Guess what? I found something. You know, I mean, that literally that kind of thing, just remind them, oh, okay, yeah, that's right. I, I did hire this person to find fraud. Um, so, so literally, it sounds crazy, but just those basic things, and there are subtle ways to do it. You don't have to always hit people over the head with it. It's more of an art than a, than a science, but that's important. Um, you know, conveying benevolent, proactive intent. And you can do that also by saying, this is what we're doing about it. This is what I recommend. This is how we're here to help. We're here to help. 
um, that kind of thing. The fifth is to explain without justifying, especially if for by some reason your team had some impact on the negative outcome, you really want to take it on the chin. I think we've seen many public displays of people trying to explain away things they did. It doesn't go over very well, right? It's best just to say, you know, we screwed up or, and this is how we're making it right. You know, demonstrate that you care that empathy, mm. um, a little bit of empathy can go a long way. I appreciate that in audit, there is a very delicate dance in terms of independence. And I, and I've seen that because my head auditor was always my BFF in-house as a compliance <laughs> officer. We were, you know, privately, you know, tied at the hip in terms of helping each other do our jobs and doing the right thing for the organization. Um, so, so being, uh, balancing that with some warmth, I think is really important. And then the sixth is if it's something that needs to change, if it's really urgent, you need to convey that sense of urgency. John Cotter is famous for his change management theory. And the most important point of change management theory is you have to have a sense of urgency for change to happen. And so what we tend to see, and I've seen it many, many times, and even in myself, is a tendency when we have to deliver a tough news, we have a human tendency to want to downplay the bad news. And that's a mistake. When there's something that has to change, like a control or a big expensive something um, because of the issue that's happened or a risk that you found, don't downplay the urgency because that will dissipate the, the sense of urgency that's needed to push change forward. We don't change in organizations unless the, the pain of the status quo is greater than the pain or cost of changing. So we have to make it clear that if we don't do this, 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 this could happen. So those mm -hmm. would be um, the things I would share. Thank you for that. So I'm curious when, you know, we talk about these different steps, do you, do you notice sort of a theme of what maybe some people struggle with, like as a step more than others? Is there something that like, you know, you'd like to really stress to our listeners, like work on this step, especially? Great question. I would say the benevolent proactive intent. I think that sometimes audit and compliance can be perceived as being a little overly analytical and not a part of the team. Again, mm -hmm. recognizing the need for independence. I, I do appreciate that there is that and, and auditors have a heavier burden than compliance with that. Um, and boards have it with CEOs. You know, there, there's all kinds of um, protocols and good governance that needs to be set up in terms of how people manage their relationships. Um, and I think that the best auditors that I've worked with that have had the best relationships with boards, with CEOs, have done a really great job of maintaining their intellectual independence and the need to do their job as, as well as making it clear that they're, that they're there, that they understand the business. They're there to help the business. They want to leave as light a footprint as possible while doing their job thoroughly, proactively, mm -hmm. um, that kind of thing. Definitely. And I, I feel like that especially, um, you know, sets us up for success, especially when we think about, you know, that stat about how 
you know, bearers of bad news, you know, are often disliked more. Um, you know, it helps, it helps with that. Um, so I really appreciate that, that aspect of it. What, you know, and you've, you've mentioned the steps. Um, what are some effective strategies you recommend, you know, for maybe initiating like that tough conversation? Sure. I would say for, for regular updates, it's great to have a sense of the reactivity of your audience. I would say, mm-hmm. you know, with some, I have, I've reported to CEOs that um, were level five leaders where I would say they were very thoughtful. Um, you know, one in particular was super, one of my former bosses is now the CEO of McKesson and he was fantastic. He could immediately jump into any topic in the middle with me. So I didn't have to do a lot of preamble or reminding him what mm-hmm. I did or any of that stuff. Um, <laughs> He had a PhD in economics from you know, University of Chicago. So he's an unusual CEO and, and just had a capability beyond sales and and, and other types of CEOs that, that come to, to lead. Um, so I knew I could just jump right in and tell him. And there would be no blowback. He would just be very factual and, and um, in problem-solving mode with me. I can't say that about everyone. So some other, <laughs> some other CEOs that I've worked with, highly reactive. Mm-hmm. And they imagine the worst when you come in or you share something. It's right through these two ends of the spectrum, I would say. So when you're dealing more with a reactive boss, I would say really, really preparing and anticipating mm-hmm. what could go wrong in the conversation. In other words, not the way, not the outcome you wanted or intended, um, either in the actions the company's going to take or the impact on how you're perceived as a leader. So getting information about, and, and, and I think watching and being aware and having some high EQ around the reactive leaders is, is important because you want them to be educated and informed in the right way about risk and about fraud. And, um, you know, they really set the tone. So I think that, that auditors are actually in a wonderful place to help coach the CEO if they can create that kind of a relationship because we all know that, I mean, everything from expense report fraud, which is probably one of the most common forms of fraud, um, but it's very leaky for companies and a big deal, especially during the pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's there's the big, you know, really, really nasty ones or third party um, issues, vendors, those kinds of things um, that can also be huge. So I would say preparation, knowing your audience, mm-hmm. thinking through possible anticipated responses. If, if it's a really important communication that you have, I would literally probably do two or some scenario planning. I just did some with a coaching client last week and we came up with, with four different scenarios. And so when he was in the meeting with the CEO, he was able to pivot very easily and he'd already gotten over his initial jitters around how am I going to deliver this? He'd gotten confidence and had some muscle memory in his body, literally around being comfortable with the discomfort Mm -hmm. and most of the time we avoid uncomfortable situations. And unfortunately that includes practicing, but I can tell you, if anyone's ever had to practice for a speech or memorize some dialogue, you know, you do better when, and you become more relaxed and it's more Mm -hmm. like a discussion when you've practiced it. So I would say, again, if, if it's something super important, tough audience, I would get some bullet points together. I might even run it by a colleague, just, you know, and, and then have them in your back pocket 
memorize them until you feel really comfortable with how you're placing it. And, and, you know, it's what happened, you know, why should I care? Um, you know, how did it happen and what are we doing about it? Right. Those are usually the four things an executive wants to know. And should you just want to be ready with all of that? Definitely. I, I really appreciate that statement about getting comfortable with the discomfort, um, you know, and that emphasis on practice. One thing that you mentioned, and I'd love to, to talk a bit more about is you mentioned EQ um, and knowing your audience. How important is emotional intelligence, you know, when, you know, having these tough discussions or maybe conducting interviews related to fraud? Um, what role does it play in, you know, achieving a successful outcome? I think it can, it can play a heavy role. Um, when most of the time when I'm brought into coach, it's because of relationships. It's not because of someone's technical skill. I can't teach mm -hmm. someone how to do X or Y. Right. <laughs> um, and then I'm coaching C-suite level anyway. So they've already, you know, made the, the minimum requirements. And I've written about this a lot in, in some of my Harvard business review articles around at a certain point, your skills don't matter anymore. People tend mm -hmm. to over index on skills, but at a certain point, it's all about your relationships. The, this, you've already made it to the skill level. Now it's, okay, can you relate to people? Do they want to work with you? Can you get outcomes from it? And so the EQ becomes exceptionally important past, I'd say, a director, senior director level. That's really what it's all about. Um, and some people get cynical about that. They're like, oh, it's just who you know, that kind of thing. Yes, and we're... we're we're social animals. We, we need to trust each other. We need to be able to work together. So mm -hmm. it's just, it is what it is. Um, so I think that when you choose a role like, like a risk or compliance or an audit role, it automatically puts you on the other side of people. And that can be very, very challenging. And in fact, some of the social science research has actually found that, um, some, when we deliver bad news, some people ascribe an ill intent to us that we actually wanted mm. the bad thing to happen because we're meaning makers as people. We mm. want to, to understand why, like, why did this happen? Why did this person do this? And it, it doesn't completely make sense, but, but uh, I, I'm happy to share the research with you. It's, it was fascinating. So when we choose a life and a profession like compliance or risk or audit, that also actually um, gives people a pass at disliking us because we chose a career that's unlikable. It's like we chose a career, uh, we chose, you know, our, our fate in a way. And <laughs> I know, right? So I, this is why I write about it because I think it's very, very important for our professions to to understand this and, and have strategies to overcome that bias. Uh, do you, like, have any maybe starting points for where people, you know, who aren't quite comfortable with that skill set yet can can begin with with EQ in terms of getting yeah. better people. I'd always say know yourself first, and there are some wonderful, really reasonable assessments out there. DISC is one that's super common in terms of what's your personality type, and then understanding that everyone in the workplace is is a different type, has different preferences, different motivations, mm -hmm. different interests. Um, I have a, a self assessment on my site that that um, may help people in that direction in terms of self-awareness in increasing your self-awareness around how you're perceived mm -hmm. doing a 360. If people can, if uh, your HR department offers 360s 
for leaders, that's a wonderful thing to do with, with your team. If you're an audit leader, doing it with your team is a, is a really good team experience because frankly, they're, they're difficult. You sometimes get feedback that's really hard to hear and really critical to moving ahead and not having any blind spots. And if you do it as a team, you can support each other. You can say, oh, okay, I got this feedback that I come across kind of brusque. Um, I'm going to work on that. Oh, I did too. Okay, let's work on that together. You know, you can make it a team. I, I'm highly, I, I try to, that's, that's something that makes something that it's difficult, difficult news, right? And then it, show, but it mm-hmm. shows you care. It shows that you want to know how you're showing up to clients. Um, and one quick step in this direction, if you don't have an HR support or 360, is to ask your key stakeholders, including your direct reports, including you know CEO, your board, whomever, you can ask them and do a, a self-check and just say, you know, I'm really interested in, in partnering and being the best I can be at what I'm doing. What one thing could I do that would make me more effective in my work with you? And pause and listen. And you'll usually get, because you're being very specific about just one thing, and you're asking for it. So you're making it psychologically safe for the person to give you the feedback. You're creating that space that we talked about earlier in a different context. That's really important. And sometimes people say, oh, thanks for asking. Let me come back to you. And that's fine. And then just, you know, bring it up again. But number one, that does two things. Number one, it shows you care. And so you already get huge brownie points just by asking. So simply by asking, you're you're bonding in the relationship. Mm-hmm. Number two, you're setting a great example for your organization. Everybody should be asking this, in my opinion. This is something I I share all the time um, with people in terms of being aware of how you show up and not having derailers, not having blind spots, which can really kill your career the higher you go. And people mm-hmm. may not tell you, you know, or you may get it too late. Uh, that that's, that's sometimes what I see in my coaching too, and that's really a shame. I've, I've been asked before, you know, if, if, if I could give my younger self advice, what one thing would I say? And I would say getting better at giving and receiving difficult feedback mm-hmm. would be the number one thing. And I tell my, my daughters who are now going to be entering the job market fairly soon, the same thing, because it's tough, but we have to just get over ourselves because if we don't know something about how we're showing up, People, it's still out there. It's not like it's not mm-hmm. there. It's like putting a paper bag over your head, right? It's it's not there. It's not there. It is there. And so um, you'd rather know because then you can do something mm-hmm. about it. Frankly, I consider it risk assessing ourselves in terms of right. getting to know ourselves and, oh, okay, I, can, I have a bad temper or I can um, be scared of delivering bad news. I can not react proactively to a performance issue. I, I delay mm-hmm. too long. Or I don't set proper boundaries. That right, all these things we, we need to know about ourselves so that we can make better choices next time. I love that. I I also think it kind of you know further feeds into you know we're creating a culture of you know asking for that feedback, asking for you know feedback we might not like, um, and then our organization gets a bit you know, better and better about having difficult conversations. So I really love how that, you know, can feed into each other. Yeah, for me, this is all about um, walking the talk in, in every way. And so yeah. if we get good at speaking up and psychological safety for our own feedback, I, I personally believe that drives a better culture that can talk about risk in a really intelligent, thoughtful way and, and, so that it's a holistic, sustainable business, right? And it's not just about making money. It's not just about the numbers. Yeah, definitely. Um, 
One thing you mentioned earlier, and I'd love to kind of bring the conversation back around to, you talked about, you know, knowing your audience, knowing, you know, who you're, you're talking to. So March is Women's History Month. Um, and I would really love to get, you know, your insight on, you know, the, the role of gender in difficult conversations, you know, in your experience, you know, working with all of these different companies and people, how have you seen gender play a role in the dynamics of difficult conversations? It does play a role. And I'm going to start off just by saying it's not fair uh, what I'm about to say, and I get it. Um, and there's some gender judo that that women in senior roles need to do and, and be aware of. And sometimes society doesn't change as quickly as, as it should, right? And we have some wonderful male allies out there. So I know they're listening and, and are supportive. And there's been more and more talk about this. So luckily, I think our current generation is growing up better equipped. The men are better equipped to, to help women watch where they might be being treated differently. But in general, leaders need to balance two things to be effective in the workplace. They need to be they need to balance, balance approachability and assertiveness. And some combination of that makes really ultimately their brand to really reduce mm-hmm. it down to just two things. What we found with gender is that for men, men can lean into their assertiveness, and they don't have to be as approachable to be respected and liked even. With women, what we find is women need to lean more into approachability than than assertiveness. If that balance is off and they lean too far into assertiveness, and we've seen this with several public figures, they can mm-hmm. get hit with a likability penalty. So having that EQ and having that awareness can be important so that women don't get unfairly discriminated against or punished or not listened to in a conversation. And again, I, it's it's not fair, but it is the current, the way that the genders have just evolved in most societies. And you know, America is much better than, than many other organizations and cultures in which I've, I've supported people. Um, gotten better, it's getting better. Um, and there's, there's always more work to do. And I would say, um, you know, not every man or woman fits into a particular stereotype either. I've coached men who have had a hard time being heard and asserting mm-hmm. themselves. So, um, so I don't want to, you know, broad brush everybody, but those, those are, that, that's how I would, I would say. So just, um, being aware, adding, adding warmth in general at the right time, at the right moment mm-hmm. is, is very helpful. And I think that can be a little off-putting for some women because we've all probably been told, oh, just smile more, <laughs> which is, <laughs> right, uh, the number yeah. one sin. You, it's, There's nothing that can, you know, uh, make you shoot from zero to 100 more if, if someone says that. Um, and I, <laughs> I got that feedback at one point, too, because when I get really analytical, I can get really, when I get, put my attorney hat on, I can get really um, stoic and, and I don't realize it. And so I, it's a habit I had to change actually in terms of smiling mark. It gets more natural as you, as you, you know, practice. Um, but I would say that, that there is something around what's otherwise a, a really annoying insult to say to smile more, um, that it's that approachability. So definitely, definitely. I really appreciate that. Um, that advice and, you know, that you know, perspective that you have, um, 
so before we, you know, kind of wrap up our conversation, yeah. um, Amy, is there, you know, are there anything or is there anything that you want to highlight any upcoming, you know, work that you're doing um, that you'd like to let our listeners know about? Sure. Thank you. We can um, go on my website and pick up a PDF of the six steps. I've outlined them there. I also have written for Compliance Week on the topic, and I have a journal article that's much more extended that's coming out in Leader to Leader, which is the Francis Hesselbein, University of Pittsburgh Leadership Journal will be coming out this summer. And that has some actual case examples of of individual of these individual steps. I interviewed people from our Afghanistan Army veterans to um, Wall Street bankers. And so I think that will be my hope is that that illustration will help us remember the concepts so that when to make it easier for people to remember in the moment. So I'm doing that. And then just continuing with some compliance and ethics work, speaking at, at several of our compliance and ethics conferences and and um, continuing to write, writing. I'm writing a piece right now for Harvard about layoffs and how to communicate them well. Because um, for me, it's all about balancing what needs to be said with with empathy. And, and there's a lot of that going on right now. So those are some of the things I'm working on right now. Wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. Um, Thank you, Amy, so much for being here today. I really appreciated our conversation. Yeah, me too. Thanks for inviting me. People are welcome to reach out and connect on LinkedIn. And I have a, a newsletter and hundreds and hundreds of free resources. I keep a library on my website. So you can literally just go under resources and pick up pretty much anything I've ever written or spoken about. Perfect. And thank you for listening. You can find this podcast along with all other episodes of Fraud Talk on acfe.com, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. This has been Rihanna Scoggins signing off.